Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Before we get underway with this week's episode, uh, just remind you that Book Shambles is at the Albert Hall Science and Science Fiction Authors. Four episodes, uh, and uh, our first announced guest is Lucy Green. Uh, there are more that will be announced over the next couple of months, and we're recording at the Albert Hall on June the 4th and June the 11th. That, in, in, in the, the movie, film. yeah. yeah. And, oh yeah, uh, not in it's it's grotesque. <laughs> so anyway, welcome. That that, by the way, is our guest for today, who is Francisco. Oh, uh, we already, Francisco. we've already been recording. Oh, yeah, yeah just we, we fade we'll in. We'll fade in. The Francisco Cantu, who's written a, a fascinating book about as as a young man, and he is still a young man, uh, all about being uh, basically a, a border cop uh, between the border of uh, Mexico and the USA, and as everyone listening will know this is a, uh, a very pertinent time to become educated uh, about this. I'm going to start off straight away with a, a quote from one of our other guests, in fact, mm-hmm. um, which is a man called Richard Holloway, who's the former Bishop of Edinburgh. And he said, when we can go through life not knowing who we are until the right combination of circumstances suddenly puts us to the test and reveals our true character. Now, right from the start of this book, you, you, you start, you're with your mother um, who worked for the park services, and she has a question. Here you are of Mexican heritage and you're and you've been to university and you're gonna go and work basically as as a border cop. And she wonders why. And I wonder what was in your head? Because even in the book, I don't think I ever quite get really that initial moment where you thought, yep, I've got my degree. Now I'm gonna go there. You know, I think so. I so I grew up in Arizona. Um and, you know, we, we traveled around a little bit when I was uh, very young because, you know, my mom was working at different national parks around the country. Oh, wow. Um, which it's a fantastic way to grow up because you're just, you know, you're in great, amazing outdoor places, you know, as you're, I, I don't know, like a young kid, you love to be outdoors. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I grew up, you know, very close to like desert landscapes um, you know, never too far from the border, sort of like far enough from the border that it wasn't like an everyday consideration, um, but close enough that it wasn't entirely abstract. But, you know, fast forward to, you know, me finishing high school, I lived in a small town, I, I couldn't wait to leave and, and, and to get out of Arizona. Um, and, you know, it's a, it was like a cowboy town, really. And so I went to school in Washington, D.C., which is like, the opposite. The opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, in, in literally like, in every single way. And I and I went to school for um, for international relations. Um, and you know, I imagined that I would be like a I wanted to be a diplomat. And I had I had just caught like the the travel bug that young people catch. Um, and you know, I imagined myself like traveling and to every country and, and learning as much as I could, um, kind of to like take me as far away from home as I could. Mm. But there was something about being surrounded um, by so many. I mean, Washington, D.C., like, really attracts the most kind of, like, ambitious know-it-all people. Sure. 
And uh, something about being surrounded by those people in the classroom, you know, having grown up in this small town and then all of a sudden being in the classroom with somebody who's like, oh, well, I know everything about the Iran uh, nuclear crisis oh. because my uncle is a... You know, like he's an oil executive who like was in Iran for a week, and you know, like oh, those like, kinds of people. It's like the level of puffed up confidence, and it takes you years to go. Oh, they were just confident. They weren't clever. They just didn't come from somewhere where this is an extreme extreme culture shock for them. Yeah, because you're simultaneously like bewildered by their confidence. Um, and because, you feel like I don't know about the Iran Iraq conflict, so I guess they must be right. Right, and then but and then you're like, no, they're just an asshole. Like they don't know what they're talking about. And um, and and so for so for me, like I mean, this is maybe freshman year, right? Like my like my first few semesters at college. Um, and you were there. This would have been still the Bush administration, wasn't it? Yes. This was, yeah. Yeah. This was. Two, I started college in two thousand four, so Bush would have uh, um, just been. Reelected, I guess. Um, so you know, there was something about that that was like, well, I don't want to be that kind of person. And so if I start studying, you know, Europe or the Middle East or something, I'm I'm going to be that person because I've never spent time there. I don't know about the intricacies of these of these um, countries. And so my reaction was to sort of turn back toward where I came from. Um, and, you know, the, the international issue where I come from is the U.S.-Mexico border. And so, so I started in, you know, sophomore and junior year really focusing my studies on the U.S.-Mexico border and immigration. Um, and I studied abroad in Mexico. And so then there was this strange thing where a lot of the l- book learning and, like, academic learning that I was doing felt very um, severed from, like, the realities that I knew growing up, like the cultural realities and the and the realities of especially the landscape. Um, and so I think by the time I graduated, I really had I had the feeling that I wanted to leave DC. I wanted to go back home. Um, I knew that I wanted to continue learning about the border. I had all of these questions, like a lot of the same questions that we're still asking ourselves about the border and immigration. And you know, I I I had this feeling that I wanted to connect the dots between um, this book learning that I had done and, you know, the realities that I was somewhat close to but still sort of far away from growing up. And so when I started looking at what are the ways to actually be out on the border um, day in and day out, like in the physical landscape where all of this is unfolding, um, I was like, well, who's out there all the time? You know, there's some ranchers out there. There's... um, migrants and drug smugglers and and border patrol agents but you know my mother it, it, so i guess you know it was an uncommon choice even even for me and like even amongst my friends i think people were, were like well that's weird like why would you do that but of course you know your mother is always the one person who's never going to let you off the hook like my mother um was sort of constantly interrogating me i mean she was terrified for my personal safety but she was also um, I think much less naive because, you know, in in my mind, this was something that I could step into and do for for three or four years and and come away with like all of these answers. Right. Like I could gather all of this insight and um, I would have, you know, experiences that that no policymaker or researcher really ever has. And I thought that that would give me like some secret answer and I could go on to become a policymaker or an immigration lawyer with all the, with, you know, 
all the answers and fix everything or something, right? And but my mother, I think, saw that, um, you know, she had worked for the government, a very different kind of agency. But I think she saw that when you step into an institution, you know, you give over all these parts of yourself, of your identity, and you know, your spirit, in order for that institution to sort of accomplish its goal through you, in part. Um, of course, like their goals are not your goals at all, and um, yeah, and you sort of think, oh well, I'll be working detached from this, and not this will affect me and force me into positions that are difficult. And because as a young person, right? I mean, I was I had just turned twenty three when I showed up at the academy. I made the decision to join when I was twenty two, and as a young person, you know, like you're saying, you have this idea of yourself as a fully formed adult and you have, you know, you think that you have a, um, you know, a moral code and a, a sense of ethics that is sort of, you know, monolithic and like un, un, unfallible. And so, um, you know, I, I thought that I would be able to step into this work and to kind of like not partake in the bad bits and, you know, see and observe and, and, and not really, I guess, like the idea that I would be implicated in all of that was somehow not part of my equation or my calculation. Well, one of the things that I, I think is very interesting in this book is always that point of, uh, of, of humanizing people who are statistics. And you talk specifically about people who spend a lot of their life saying, this person, we have to remove the fact that they have become a number and we have to give their humanity back. And that's one of the things you talk about in the book is, is for instance, the metaphors that are used for different ways of explaining those who are trying to get uh, across uh, the border. So can you kind of enlarge on what, on what that Yeah. You know, it's funny because when you, when you hear it, it's so obvious because you're like, oh, yes, I have read a headline that has every one of those buzzwords in it. So, you know, I'm thinking of like... When we read about migration or migrants, we read quite often about them um, in terms of a flood. You know, mm-hmm. like there's there's a flood of migrants. There is a, a wave. We must stem the tide. Um, or, or, you know, like in the U.S.-Mexico border, they talk about a cat and mouse game. Um, you talk about an uptick as if, you know, these these people's lives could be plotted as a line on a graph. Also, cat and mouse game is so vile because it's like, yeah, you guys are the fucking cat. Like, this is not a, a, a fair power uh, dynamic. <laughs> and yet... Yeah, there, I, I mean, there's a, piece of, there's a piece of research that I quote from in the book um, from this, this, this um, professor at the University of Arizona, a sociologist, and, and she sort of has categorized all of these... She, she looked at 10 years' worth of newspaper headlines. Wow, um, and have they changed over that 10 years? Well, she, I, you know, this was the 10 years that she was looking at was probably the like early to mid 2000s. Okay. Um, and so she categorized all those metaphors as in, you know, there's violent metaphors that talk about the toll of crossing the desert. Um, and then there's dehumanizing metaphors that compare migrants to, you know, animals or uh, water or, you know, these kinds of things. And so when you read that breakdown, you're like, oh, yes, actually pretty much everything I've ever read about migration in a newspaper or everything I've seen about it in the news falls into one of these categories. Hmm. And that that's one of the uh, – I mean, I, I, I found your – there's a point in the book quite early on really where you get your first moment of fear 
that this is you're beginning to become normalised. There's a certain moment, for instance, of guilt where you're talking to uh, a couple and she's pregnant and you're talking to them mm. and then you say at the end of the day you go and then I just remembered at the end of the day I'd forgotten their names. And that seemed to be the starting point, certainly in, in the book, where you start to feel that you are becoming too normalised to your work. Yeah, so I guess um, as an indirect way of, of, of answering this question... Um, after I left the Border Patrol, you know, I didn't, I didn't do the job thinking that I would write a book about it. Um, and I didn't really do any, any writing about the experience until, you know, leaving, uh, until having left after I think like a year or like half a year or a year. Um, and the first, one of the very first things that I did was I returned to these journal entries that I had uh, made during like my first year um, in the field, and this was one of those journal entries, and it, it's strange because I never really, th- I never looked back at them, like, while I was doing the job, you know, I would come home, or sometimes it would be, you know, when I had a day off, and I'd be like, man, I still remember this conversation I had with, with this person, or with these people that I, you know, was apprehending, and, and if, if I don't write that down, like, things happen here so fast, I'll forget it, um, and so, you know, I realized when I took them all out of the journal and like put them into a Microsoft Word document, I was like, I was, I was, I suddenly felt very overwhelmed by like the accumulation of all of those individual encounters, um, and and they're all very short because you know you're 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 apprehending somebody out in the middle of the desert and you're you're maybe like driving them back to the station, asking them a few questions, and then like you're leaving them in a cell and then you go back out to work. Um, and so this particular, to return, you know, to this woman that you're talking about, yeah, I, 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 uh, I think I had only been working on my own, um, you know, without supervision for like a month or two. Um, and like one of the low level jobs that you get is just like being a transport person. Like you go, if somebody, uh, apprehends a group, you go pick them up and take them back to the station. And so there was a call that, you know, two people had just, shown up in the middle of this little village out in the middle of the desert and, and were looking, you know, well, they were lost. They, they um, were just waiting for the Border Patrol to come get them. Um, and so I showed up, and it was a, you know, a woman in her late 20s or something who was pregnant and her husband. And, um, and as I started talking with them, the husband, you know, was bragging that his wife spoke fluent English. I started speaking with her, and she like, she... She had grown up in the United States. She went to high school in Iowa. She was a kindergarten teacher. Um, and she had left the country because her her mother died um, or someone in her family died, and she went to care for the family. Um, and then, you know, she had, she had stayed there. Um, but when she got pregnant, she made the decision with her husband that she wanted to cross back over because... Um, she wanted to have, she wanted to raise her kid in the United States so that they could have the same life as they did. And so, I mean, this made, it was probably one of the most, I mean, how can you not connect with that situation, everything about it? And so, but I think what, when I, when I was returning to that journal entry, when I was remembering that encounter, um... You know, I remember that I specifically wanted to, I specifically made a connection. I like, I asked them to be safe. I asked them to like think of their child. I I asked them, it was maybe the, 
one of the few times I'd ever done this. Like I asked them what their names were and I and I introduced myself to them. Um, and and then I remember like seriously an hour later I was sitting in my car and I and I realized that I had forgotten like their names. And I think the reason I remember that is because I I like had gone out of my way to remember their names because that in that moment it was like this human urge to like connect with these people. But of course I was a cop like I'm sending them back at the end of the day like I'm an agent of the state. Um and it was like this attempt to break through that. Um and it was it was completely futile, right? Like I and and it wasn't really until I think I started writing the book that I was like, oh, me forgetting their names, like that's the first step in in dehumanization. Now, I was hugely ignorant of the the entire situation until I read your book. Of course, I remain as a human being hugely ignorant. But <laughs> the uh, one of the things I think that sometimes you know when I go to the states and I watch some of the news shows, there's this kind of look that, uh, especially with the talk of the wall being built, is that oh these Mexicans they can just hop over the wall and suddenly they're in the USA. And one of the things that your book makes very clear is. Once you're out, there is an incredible... I Just that picture of the kind of people you are picking up. I mean, there's an incredible bit where you pick up this kid and he's really kind of drained and he's quite a big lad and he's kind of in this broken T-shirt. And and, and then when he, he says, I can't remember where it is, you, you get chatting to him. And he said, yeah, I was going to come over here and, uh, yeah, I was just going to start selling uh, heroin in Oregon because that sounds like it's a good way of making money. And there's, there's just this really... And I thought, what are you saying? What you, This guy is, you know, this is this, this guy is the official. And you think, well, I'll tell him about my dreams and what I had hoped to achieve. Oh. I was hoping to say, well, heroin. I mean, that is so naive as well, isn't it? But to be that's like, the thing. I'll just disclose this to somebody who will yeah. then be able to use it to prosecute. Yeah, there, there seemed oh. to be a double night. You know, that first, the naivety sometimes in, in the strange admittance of ambition, and then also the journey itself, mm-hmm. the actual, both the physical and the metaphor journey. That, 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 I wonder if you can exp- explain a little bit. You know, when someone has got over that wall, the kind of people you were dealing with, you, you, you know, there's people found dead, people who. Mm-hmm just you know we're not going to be dehydrated and i you know listening to you talk about that it's i think especially having a book out right and then and then like going around and having different conversations with people about the book i've noticed that um that a lot of people don't don't realize you know how you talked about we imagine there's a line and then like you step over onto the other side of the line and you're in the united states like you made it um and that you just have to catch someone right there. Uh, to, like it sounds simple or you just build a wall right there. Um, and I think, you know, you, you see all the ways that like the, the narrative of what happens along the border um, has been sort of completely lost and, and misrepresented and refracted um, into this like small, insignificant um, re- you know, rhetorical device of like, oh, like build a wall like that. That sounds it sounds like a simple solution to a simple problem. Um, But of course, it's based on, you know, having like no conception of this place as a physical terrain like the the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, the distance from Land's End to John O'Groats is half the distance, like less than half the distance of the U.S.-Mexico border. So, like, imagine building a wall across, you know, the entirety of the U.K. and then back again. Um, so f- This is a very good idea at the moment. We're a very divided country, and I think we should do that, actually. So <laughs> if you end up with any spare wall... You heard you it know. here first, yeah. But also, 
when you like, and I'm sorry because I haven't yet read your book due to being having sat in a dark room for four days. But um, uh, how do you feel about it now? Like, what's your perspective on it now? Is that that's like a bit of a broad question? Mm-hmm. But how did you feel like it affected you? And like, did you come out of it thinking, okay, but like at least have some idea what might be possible or useful to do? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. And it's also like the question that I don't have an answer for because, um, you know, I I mentioned, right, that I joined with all of these questions and that like I I joined with like this thirst um, to to find answers to those questions and to like find those answers and use them. Um, But, you know, I came away, I think, feeling really defeated and, you know, like leaving the Border Patrol and then kind of, um, I guess, like turning, like actually looking at, at writing and becoming a writer was like this strange act of surrender because I felt that um, that I only had more questions and that this issue that I had just spent, you know, the last four years um, trying to become close to and understand, like only felt more overwhelming and incomprehensible and unanswerable. Um and so writing, writing is 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 one of those um, things that like it's one of it's one of the few occupations where it's okay to just ask questions, right? Like writing in science, like you you're encouraged to ask questions and you know to posit those questions on your readers and to encourage readers to ask uh, better questions and more questions. And so, and so that, like, that's what attracted me towards writing this book. I mean, the book really began as a way for me to look back at what I had been doing for four years and, and grapple with my participation in this institution that, um, you know, when I look at it now is, is perpetuating like terribly flawed, deadly policies um, and, uh, you know, like the closest, like there's a few things that I think we know specifically how they are wrong and that like those specific things need to be fixed. Um, I, th- I don't have like policy answers, but I think that, you know, grappling, you, you mentioned being in a dark room, like trying to grapple your way out of that room is better than just like standing in the corner of that dark room. And what we've been doing in our country for the last, you know, 20 years or more is just standing in a dark room. We've had no political courage to make any kind of immigration reform. Um, And the only suggestion is like, can we make the room smaller? Is that better? (laughs) I mean, quite literally, the argument to build a wall is the same argument that that uh, we were having in, in the U.S. in 2005 and 2006. And there was quite literally a build-the-wall bill that, like, was passed. That's what it was called. It was called the Secure Fences Act of 2006. And, you know, we allocated all this money to build walls and fencing to hire more Border Patrol agents. Um, and that's exactly the same thing that's being proposed right now, as if you know, people forgot that that happened. And people also don't seem to realize that there already are a lot of walls. Like there's 700 miles of of border uh, fencing and barriers of some sort along the border. Um, and, you know, what we've done through this policy is like we've more and more heavily enforced the towns and cities and like all the places where it's easy to cross the border. And we've pushed these crossings out. This gets gets back to your last question, we've pushed all these crossings out into the most remote, dangerous, rugged parts of the desert. 
And so that's why we have people walking for two, three, four, ten days through the desert, um, you know, to circumvent roads and checkpoints and ports of entry. Um, and, and, and hundreds of people lose their lives that way every year. I wondered with um, when you were writing about your mother when she was growing up, you say that because she was uh, Mexican, she was she would be considered to be clumsy and lazy and all of these kind of stereotypes. And you say that, of course, with each generation as you as you have lived in, a, then that becomes a lesser and lesser. But I was just wondering, with all the rhetoric that's been going on in the US in the last uh, well three years, but but longer than that, but in particular, it seems to have risen in its toxicity. How have you? I mean, for someone like your mother, how is she reacting to to what she's seeing? And, and has she seen a retrograde step? Yeah, my my mother's um, particular case, I think at. Um, it's, it's simultaneously seems very, very different. And also I have come to realize very similar to what a lot of people with like mixed heritage in in the United States or, or probably anywhere have come to experience. So, you know, my, my mother's father was, uh, brought across the border when he was five years old. Um, his family was fleeing the violence of the Mexican revolution. So, you know, they really came over as refugees. Um, and so... My mother's half Mexican. She, uh, her mother's like German Irish, and um, her mother and her father separated when she was very young, and and she grew up with her mother, not with my grandfather, and so, you know, she didn't grow up close to the Mexican side of of her family. Um, so she didn't grow up speaking Spanish. Um, she didn't grow up having really like any Mexican cultural reinforcement. Um, I think, you know, she ended up growing up in. Like she ended up going to like Catholic school in the in the Midwest or something, um, and you know she she sort of talked to me about actually found out a lot more about my mother's upbringing um, after I had started writing this book and I sort of wanted to like flesh out her experience a little bit more so we actually like sat down and had some conversations that we might have not otherwise had, um, and she was telling me that. Um, you know, her mother, who she's very close with, uh, who she, you know, dearly loved, um, you know, would would sort of shame her Mexican heritage. Um, or, sorry, she was sort of like reinforcing her feeling ashamed about that part of her identity. Um, so whenever, as you mentioned, whenever she, you know, didn't turn something in in school or didn't do her chores, she, you know, her mother would say, well, that's your like lazy Mexican side coming through. And then whenever she, you know, did good in school or like, you know, accomplished something, she's like, "Well, that's your your German Irish uh, work ethic." <laughs> oh God! Um, and so, you know, like it sounds so so plain, but I think that you know that's just like a more direct version of like what we do as a society, right? Like we hold up, you know, sort of whiteness, and we like push away. Um, you know, especially when my mom was growing up, right, in like the 60s and 70s. And um, it's just more insidious now. Like it's, it's more insidious. the same thing, but people aren't as brazen about it. And well, but now, but now they're becoming more brazen. Like, yeah. like there's been this weird, um, there's, yeah, there's been this weird bell curve where like it, um, it was more under the surface and, and now it's coming out again. And, and I think like that's something that's so interesting about the rhetoric in the U.S., but also here, right, and mm-hmm. also in, in many parts of Europe where, um, 
like the actual realities that people are living with, um, you know, on the on the border, or you know, like a lot of the realities that um, you know that minority groups um, or people of color are dealing with on a day to day basis haven't maybe changed that much in substance, right? But um, the rhetoric has has grown and so like we're noticing it more especially if we're in a, a position of privilege um like i see this with regard to the border all the time where you know from my perspective the actual reality of like how difficult it is to cross the border and and the fa- the fact like how many people are losing their lives crossing the border and um and the also f- the desperate circumstances that lead you to want to like abandon where you're from and like to have to leave in that way and also, like, the fear that you live with once you make it. Like, so we imagine that once you make it, it's like this, okay, now press play on the American dream. Like, mm-hmm. now the American dream happens. But uh, for so many migrants, like, they're, they're living in, like, absolute fear that they're, you know, going to get stopped on their bicycle or in their truck on their way to work um, and, and just be deported. Um, and, and that has grown exponentially with the rhetoric. Um, I think the rhetoric fosters a climate of fear um, and fosters a climate of, like, suspicion in, like, turning us against, you know, other people in our society. And, you know, we have politicians that are on the record as saying that what we're trying to do is create an inhospitable environment so that migrants will self-deport. Like, that's a a stated policy goal for a lot of these... um, it's full on. It's bleak. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm like getting upset because I'm pregnant. Right. You're like, you're you might just be getting upset. You got upset before yeah. you were pregnant as That's well. That's very true. Yeah. The um, was... something about me, I think. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, just because you mentioned also dream. I, I want to because I want to talk about some other books as well. Uh, sure. And yeah, we want to ask you. But I, I want to just because I actually was dreaming of the wall last night. This strange coastal kind of vision of the wall. And your book has throughout it, you pepper it with your changing dreams and also bring up the fact that one of the it's Sicario is that right the, yeah. the drug one of the guys who was was an, an assassin basically a murderer for, for, for drug groups there was a point where his dreams made him start to go hang on a minute if this is what I'm dreaming I have to stop so I'm interested in your you bring up Jung and, and Shadow something but that fascination with, with what the, your dreams you felt were expressing about your state of mind you know, it's funny, a lot of, in, in a lot of interviews, people will ask me, you know, like, what was the moment when you knew that, like, this, this job was too much or that you needed to quit? And there was actually really never, like, a moment. Um, there was never, like, an outward experience on the job where I was like, oh, man, like, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, the, the Border Patrol, much like most of our institutions, um, you know, much like any military or law enforcement job is like really designed to in the train, like the moment you step into the training academy or boot camp or whatever, you know, that's designed to sort of break down your sense of who you are as an individual um, and to sort of like reshuffle everything and rebuild you in the image of a law enforcement agent or a soldier. And, you know, so, so one of the central questions of this book is looking at all the ways that we normalize violence, that we become numb to violence as individuals, but also as a society. Um, and so f- so for me, you know, what happened, as somebody who joined with, like, all these very conscious questions, 
um, when I look back on it, it's alarming how quickly I set those questions aside um, in order to, because I, I was like, well, I just, I, I like, I have to show up for work. Um, I just have to like get up and do it again. And like, I'll, I'll think about those questions later. Like, I don't have time to, to process everything that I'm doing right now, you know? You just have to do it. Um, And so, like, the only things in my life that I think were sort of calling out to me and, like, reminding me who I was outside of the job and uh, reminding me of my, like, broader sense of humanity um, were, were my dreams. And... And, like, you push those aside, too, right? Like, uh, so many of us, we push away our dreams, right? We wake up and we're like, whoa, that was weird and fucking terrifying, but uh, it was just a nightmare. It's fine. I'll, I'll move out. I'll, like, move on. I'm sure that doesn't relate to my normal state of mind in any way. I'm no, sure I that's not my brain telling me exactly. Now. Well, You've it, been fox no, hunting the head was laughing long. at me. It was taunting me. Oh, you're gonna, it's going to make you even more of a fox hunter. Right, I, I had dreams quite solidly for about a year where I was like having to physically fight my way out of like a really difficult situation. And not once did I go, does this mean that in my life I feel like I'm struggling? Every day I was like, whoa, that was like an action film. Yeah, it's like, how long does it take us, right? Because once we realize that, we're like, oh, I'm such a dummy. Like my own self was t- like we go to a therapist or like a psychoanalyst <laughs> and they're like, Oh, like you're having this problem, and you're and you're like, oh, you're right. Like, how did I miss that? And it's like, oh no, actually, I was telling myself through my subconscious that this was happening. There's an incredible book that you should read, by the way, called um, uh, "Women Who Run with the Wolves" by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. It's all it's like a Jungian. Um, it, it it examines like myths and stories and archetypes. Um, and the different ways that they manifest in dreams. And it's, it's very specific to, like, um, female consciousness, but it really applies to us all. Um, yeah, so, you know, reading Jung was, like, the first time where I was like, oh, because when I left the Border Patrol, um, I was sort of interrogating those dreams. Like, some of the first reading and writing that I did, I had this one really impactful dream, of, uh, the dream about the wolf, and that really rattled me. That was the first time that I sort of sat up and was like, man, you are not okay. Like, something is wrong. <laughs> something is wrong with you. And that was the, and this was like three years into it, right? Um, and so I started, you know, it's I, like, at first I was just like looking on the internet, like, what does it mean when you dream of a wolf? <laughs> or what does it mean when you dream your teeth are falling out? Or what does it mean when you dream, you know, like you're saying, that I'm fighting all these people off. Um, and then I... And then I was, you know, start started reading like Freud and Jung and all these things, and um, and you know that's the, like that's when I realized that that was the one. I mean, it was the dreams and my mother. Like those were the only two things that were like holding me accountable and like reminding me who I was outside the confines of this like incredibly dehumanizing like violent institution. Who would have thought dreams and your mother would lead you to Freud? Um, <laughs> we've run out of time already, but I don't. I want oh, to leave no. on one more thing, which is just, we were talking before you came in, you have a few more days in the UK, and you are off to the Suffolk coast to walk in the uh, footprints of W.G. Siebold. So I wondered what it was uh, about... Uh, 
his work, and of course his work is very often also about it's outsiders. Mm-hmm. And so, what was it? <coughs> excuse me. That, that uh, why why is that your chosen uh, holiday? Yeah. So this like sort of literary pilgrimage that I'm going on for a few days is is uh, following part of his um, journey in in the Rings of Saturn, and um, actually began reading Sebald <coughs> when I was. Uh, in, in like the the first year or so of, of being in the border patrol, so I was actually like reading Sebald like as I was becoming, you know, familiar with the the mechanics of this job and and like the desert and all of this. And um, you know, it's funny because like I think you know Sebald is even quoted as talking about. Um, I mean, his principal concern I think like throughout all of his work is is looking at um, violence and, like, the the sort of shadow of violence that was cast by World War II and um, the Holocaust. Like, I mean, he's a German writer who sort of, like, lived in exile, like, sort of exiled himself from his home nation. And he, and he wrote about, like, um, you know, German, like, the 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 hesitancy of like the, the German society and culture to ever like grapple outwardly with um, the weight of that violence and 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 participating in that violence, but also having like he wrote this amazing essay called "On the Natural History of Destruction," which is all about the Allied bombing of Dr- of Dresden wow. and Hamburg, um, and how no one in Germany talks about it, and how there's no literature about it. Like if we think about the literature of World War II, I was in. What's the huge bookstore? Waterstones? Oh. There's Foils. It Foils. might have been is, is, uh, on Charing Cross Road. No, that's they, about, I think it, it was another There's one. a huge Waterstones. Waterstones Piccadilly yeah. as well. I was on yeah. Waterstones. But also go to Foils because it's the best um, non-secondhand bookshop in London. Well, apart from there's a few independent ones. It's huge. I don't want to cause like, a Both of these bookstores were huge. Yeah. But I was I was on the bottom floor. I was like looking for a book and I, and I like stumbled into the World War II section. And there was like multiple rooms of World War II literature and, um, you know, so, like, one of Sebald's questions when he was writing this essay was, like, there's so much literature about World War II, but there's, like, almost the actual, like, fiction, literary fiction and short stories about what happened in Germany, about like, written by Germans about the bombing of these cities doesn't exist. The only um, thing I think of is uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, but obviously... Oh, do you know what? Old... The moment this came up, I thought, <laughs> but we were, I know. I thought we we're not now going to get through the whole podcast we'll without mentioning Vonnegut. I knew that was going to happen. But, but it is relevant. Like, it did, but obviously he's, like, of... Like, he's American. He's not... And he's right, Yeah, he's writing as a prisoner who, from that situation, was in... A, basically, they were in a cellar, weren't they? Yeah. Well, that was... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, we, oh, but... there's a book... I think I've already recommended it on here, but there's a book that a friend of mine lent me, and it's very frustrating because I cannot remember the name or the author, so I don't know how I'm going to properly recommend Give this. Give us a clue. But it's about... I, we, we talked about it quite recently, I think in the one where we were doing the roundup of what we've read, but he was a psychotherapist who was kind of talking about how people dealt with the horrors of being in a concentration camp and about what that does Victor to your psyche. Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning? No, oh, no. Primo Levi? No, Primo no, no, Levy. no, 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 no. He, he's been, since been disgraced because 
in the 60s Bruno or something. Yes, thank you. I only just found out he was just great. You know that bit From where you me? go, thank heavens, that's some space I can cut. I've, 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 there was a guy, Ward Churchill. I don't know if you know Ward Churchill, who, who wrote various things about uh, kind of Native American history and um, was one of those people who, who picked apart Carlos Castaneda, who was, you know, one of the oh, big... Oh, yeah. That it was all right. and, and I just thought, oh, this is a great essay. And then the next thing is go, and then Ward Churchill... Oh, for heaven's sake! And then <laughs> it turns out that even the person who found out that that person was a charlatan yeah. was also charlataning it up themselves. <laughs> There's no but yeah, Bruno heroes. Uses of enchantment and, uh, and others. N- yes, not uses of enchantment. It's called something like the humanity of man or something mm. like that. And I've been reading it, but I, I have... Um, it's an excuse, but it's real. I've got the pregnancy brain. I can't remember anything. Um, but uh, in that, it, it, it sort of talks about, like, the the great weight of the violence and what it does to people and what it does to people in the long term. And, yeah. yeah. But is there something on the other side, then? Because when you bring that up, I think about where people feel having not been a part, they fictionalise their... I mean, Ronald Reagan famously mm. talked about the fact that he had been, you know, I, I think actually at some of the, the, the concentration camps, some of the death camps, and he'd mm. never gone anywhere near. And he said that thing about sometimes you oh. decide you believe something yeah. so strongly. And Dirk Bogard, one of our great actors... Um, he often talked about being, and apparently he was never there either. But I think they genuinely believed. The book I just read, Hope, by uh, Shalom Auslander, is all about that. You know, the book I was reading where I was like, I don't know what I think about this, and I still don't, but I think the writing is great, but yeah. I mean, that. so that's what, I guess, to like put a bow on your question about Sable, like that's what's so interesting about Sable's work, because he's writing about proximities to, to violence, right? And he's writing about how, you know, the only ways, like, the way to grapple with violence is through all of these circuitous, like, sideways entrances into, like, thinking about it. Like, that's why his work is so meandering and ruminative, because he, he's almost never writing about the violence straight on. Because it's, I think he has a quote talking about how, like, the weight of it is almost too much to bear. Um, but also, that as yeah. a practice is almost like the opposite of, like a direct violent act. Do you know what I mean? To be like, this is going to be very pensive, it's going to be very open, it's going to be very thoughtful, it's like deliberately taking the opposite tack, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we have to do the whole podcast over again and just talk about books because this is yeah, so much no, fun. We do that well, part, all fired you up come now. back when it comes out in paperback and then we'll okay. do it again. That, so, that is uh, mainly what we usually do, but it's it's hard because, you know, when well, you no, write something you like that, new, that you really, uh, yeah. not you, we really want to talk about it and so it's it's more in like we change it every time yeah we do no, well, <laughs> we mostly are like tell me a book you like and then we just go oh I like that oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the line becomes a river yes. is uh, out in the UK now and out in lots of other places as well it's uh, it's it's uh, it's come out in the US already hasn't yes it? it's yep. been out for for almost two months now in the US yeah and just come out this month here and sorry I know that we're sort of wrapping up but how has it been because I appreciate that the discourse in America, especially around this kind of thing, is quite heated. Mm. And like, how have you found responses to it? Have you had any kind of uh, reactions from people that you wouldn't expect, or that kind of? Oh thing? man, that's a whole nother. Uh, mm. That's a, that's 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 a whole nother. I mean, it's been uh, wild and sort of like some some things expected, some things unexpected. But I think um, like it, it's made people. You know, I've I've had a, I've received angry comments from both sides um it's been it's been an incredibly eye-opening experience it's like you know for the you know you have a book come out and you, you never know what sort of world it's going to be published into you never know what level that publication is going to have how much people are going to talk about it or, you know when you're writing a book you're just like oh like I, i'm so happy to have a publisher i'm so happy you know and then when it comes out it's a whole nother thing so 
Well, also, there's always that delay for publication, isn't there? Like, it's never like, I finished the book, we're releasing it now. It's like... Yeah, this, I finished writing this book before the election, so... Oh, wow. It, it, it was... I imagined it being published into a much different world. Wow. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Sorry to drag it out. <laughs> Thanks for having I, uh... me. And we just want to say thank you to Hayley Gullen, Michael Walker, Phil Griffith... Phil Griffiths... Why is that hard for me? Richard Bowen, Christopher Smith, Carl Eldridge, Strangers with Candy. That's a podcast, isn't it, Strangers with Candy? Thanks for supporting us, Strangers with Candy. And Jennifer Malloy, thank you so much. And if you'd like Robin and Josie to thank you at the end of an episode, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and become a Patreon supporter of the show. Uh, The show wouldn't exist without the support of uh, our Patreon pledges, so thank you very much for that. And as our thank you to you, you get extended episodes, bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, extra news. Uh, You can be a guest on Book Shambles. That's one of the reward tiers. So do go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to check that out. And as always, all the past episodes and reading lists and whatnot are at cosmicshambles.com. And don't forget the June 15 Space Shambles show at the Royal Albert Hall with Robin and Chris Hadfield and Jim Al-Khalili and Apollo astronaut Rusty Schweikart and uh, Festival Spoken Nerd. Lots of other amazing guests there. And on May 4th, we're doing a live book shambles in London at King's Place for the London launch of The Happy Brain, Dean Burnett's new book. Uh, Dean Burnett, author of The Idiot Brain. I've guessed on book shambles in the past. You may have seen him at Nine Lessons or one of the Hammersmith shows. So that's May 4th. Uh, Dean Burnett will be chatting to Robin about his new book and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, and you can get the book there. It's the day it comes out, basically. So you can get the book there and Dean will sign it and whatnot. Uh, tickets are available now from the King's Place website and also from cosmicshambles.com slash events slash happy brain. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.